That's what I've heard. <laughs> Carol's looking around, hoping somebody else will raise her hand and ask the question. Yeah, well, you're looking around like, is there somebody else could ask? No questions, really? Did you guys get a chance to um, share in your small groups your, your definitions of faith after reading the chapter? Good. I meant to tell your leaders I hoped you would do that. Was that good? Yeah, great. Um, fun, fun chapter. Yes. Okay, Kathy has a question. Right, yeah, so how much did the Old Testament figures know that there was heaven? It wasn't uh, as full-orbed, to use a theological term, uh, of an understanding as we have now after having you know, the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of the New Testament and, and Revelation and all that to tell us about it. But if you remember the story um, about... Um, Zacharias, Zacchaeus, who, not Zacchaeus, my, that wee little man, it's a, it's a name that's, shoot, that dies and he, uh, he goes to, Lazarus. Lazarus, thank you, I knew it was a name that's repeated, Lazarus, and, he, and, and then he sees uh, someone in Abraham's bosom, he's, he's in, you know, hellish, yeah, 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 he's in the bosom of Abraham, so they had an understanding that, that as Paul would put it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Um, but, and, that, and, the, and they had an understanding of resurrection because that was the whole argument between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and that group of people kind of came to the fore in the intertestamental period between the time when the New Old Testament ends and before Jesus was born. That was one of their main arguments was, is there a resurrection of the body or not? Or is it just sort of a spiritual resurrection? So they, they, before that time, generally it was believed that there would be a resurrection. They were waiting for a better resurrection, as the, as the um, author of Hebrews puts it. So there was, there was an understanding of an eternal paradise or an eternal uh, uh, place where you are present with the Lord, uh, but certainly not what we now understand. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, you know, that, that whole everything that's taught in the New Testament about heaven. Okay, it's a good question. Yes, Kay. Um, the stockbroker, the author tells us that Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt. How can this be since Moses lived many years before Christ? I know that they were expecting the Messiah, but were they expecting the Messiah way back when? Right. Uh, yeah. No, although they had to have some sense of. Um, I should repeat that question for people listening online. So the question about did um, that Moses regarded suffering for the sake of Christ as being better, and were, was he thinking of a Messiah? They, they weren't expecting Messiah in the same sense as they were after the prophets, although God, I mean, first of all, Messiah is prophesied in Genesis 1. Uh, secondly, uh, the whole I will bless all nations through you is a prophecy of Messiah to Abraham, uh, but that's not what that means. <laughs> that, and I, I will talk about that. I will talk about what, what that means. Any other questions? Yes, Amy.
Yeah, they, um, what it says is they knew he was no ordinary child, and I will talk about this, but that word for ordinary is mostly just means beautiful, but it can be more than that, and everybody thinks their kids are beautiful, but, um, but it's, more, it's more than that, and there was a whole lot of uh, ancient teaching around that. I think I mentioned to Sherilyn that there was even a school of teaching that taught that he was born circumcised, which would make him no ordinary child, of course. <laughs> that just doesn't happen every day. I also don't think it happened with Moses. But, um, uh, but the, point there, the point there that is being made is that his par- the faith of his parents, that somehow, and we don't know how, they had spiritual insight that, this, that God had a plan for this baby's life, and it wasn't to throw him into the Nile and be drowned. So, and I, I will mention that briefly in the teaching. Uh, but we don't know how. We don't know, there's no, you know, and there's no angel Gabriel coming and, you know, and saying, telling them, that we know of, that we know of. Could that have happened? Absolutely. But, but it's, it's not recorded for us. Any other questions? See, I knew you had questions. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much uh, for this day. Thank you so much uh, for this time, thank you that um, the snow cleared so that we can meet and, and learn from your word. Thank you for this portion of scripture that is so encouraging. May it compel us to live lives of faith. Uh, may these be examples for us, understanding that we too are God's people who live by faith. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've arrived at this chapter, and, and I, I, just, I just have to ask you, is there anyone who, when you saw that, the, that Hebrews was being offered, had a thought about, oh, Hebrews 11, oh, yeah, and, and Hebrews 11 factored into that. Anybody? Nobody thought, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, Hebrews, because this is like the, a beloved portion of Scripture. It's, it's kind of uh, along the, 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 the lines of Romans 8, or, which is one of my favorites, or, or John uh, 14 or yeah that, that people just go oh yeah I love that so in fact uh, Dr. Guthrie says calls Romans or not Romans calls Hebrews 11 it is poetic in its cadence panoramic in its historical sweep eminently re- relevant in its challenge this chapter calls the believer to faithful endurance by use of voluminous isn't that a beautiful word testimony from the lives of ancient saints so this is a beautiful portion of scripture it is quoted from often how many times have you heard now faith is being certain of what we uh, hoped for and sure of what we do not see how many times have you heard that and it's 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 referred to frequently but it is rarely studied in the complete context of Hebrews and we have the privilege and the joy to do that and and from the the comments I've heard this week and this morning that has really made you know Hebrews 11 more meaningful uh, for you in doing that And, and I'm so grateful for that because I do believe it makes it much more meaningful the challenge presented by our author in Hebrews 11 is that we are to live lives of faith like those listed who by faith were faithful to God. That's what he's asking of his believers. He's not saying, whoa, look at these guys, these great, you know, faith hall of fame. I really don't like that name because a hall of fame indicates that just only a few get there. No, he's saying this is the way believers live, not just a a handful. At the end, he says, I don't even have time to tell you all about all these people. It is is what is normal for a follower of God, for a follower of Jesus to live this way. Uh, And and so then that that, uh, phrase, by faith, 
he repeats it over and over and over again. In fact, it is, it is written 24 times in the 40 verses. It appears 24 times. As Guthrie says, he's driving it into the hearer's consciences like a poignant, monotonous melody. And it focuses our attention on two things. This repetition of, by faith, Abel. By faith, uh, you know, uh, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. It, it, uh, it brings to the fore two things. First, the importance of the life lived by faith for the people of God. That this is important that the people of God live by faith. And secondly, that God is holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, reliable, completely reliable, and worthy of our trust. So let's begin then with uh, just the, the beginning, the introduction, the overture of this chapter. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Um, so we begin with this. Now, faith is being sure of, if you have the, the older NIV. Um, that word actually is, is hypostasis, and it's a noun. So it, it probably more literally means confidence. Uh, rather than being sure of confidence. And it communicates the idea of firmness or confidence, particularly in God's promises, what is hoped for. So God's promises for us. We can be confident in the reality and the validity of God's promises to us. They are real and solid. And then it says that we are certain of what we do not see, or we have an assurance for what we do not see. That word, I believe it would be pronounced alenchos, but every time I look at it, I think I'm ordering something at La Mesa. Y'all have the alenchos rancheros, please? <laughs> but, but I believe it's probably pronounced alenchos. Uh, and it is an active word. It is an active certainty, which causes the believer to, in the words of P.E. Hughes, to lay hold of those realities on which his hope is fixed and which, through, though unseen, are already his in Christ. To take hold of that that we know is ours in Christ. So then what are those unseen realities? Well, there are two kinds of unseen realities. Uh, there are those that are unseen because they lay in the future, so we have not seen them yet. So the hope of heaven, we can lay hold of that truth, but it is unseen because we're not there yet. Uh, we haven't reached that point yet. And then there are those that are unseen because they belong to the spiritual realm. So we know there is a reality that right now there, there are a host of angels, and they're probably in this room. And, uh, and we know they are there. We can know like the story of Elisha, who said uh, to God, open his eyes of his servants so he could see the, the chariots of fire of angels all around them. We know that reality. It's unseen to us because it is a spiritual reality. It is not a physical reality. In both cases, though, we can have complete confidence in these unseen realities. And then in verse 3, he gives us an example of this faith. 
Uh, by faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. So that's a profession of faith. God created the world. God created the universe is a profession of faith. We know this by faith. So out of nothing, God spoke the visible created order into being. Guthrie says this, he says, faith is what looks at the created order and has a firm and resolute confidence in the God to whom it bears witness, who, though unseen, has provided a foundation for such confidence through his mighty acts. I remember my mother saying once when we were in Colorado, how can people look at these mountains and not break into how great their art, which then she broke into how great their art, which in my mother's case was a great thing because she had a beautiful voice. You don't want me to break into how great thou art. That whole thing skipped a generation. Um, so that's, that is, is the, the, the creation, the created order. By faith, we believe God created it. And yet, he has given us evidence of that throughout the universe. So by faith, by being confident in what they hoped for, by being sure of what they could not see, including an unseen God, all of these saints listened or all of these saints listed, obeyed God, and accomplished his will. Ladies, this still holds true today. This is just as true for us who are to live by faith as it was for all those great saints listed in uh, Hebrews 11. But what faith is not, what our world tends to say faith is, is some sort of George Michael, you gotta have faith, the faith, the faith sort of thing. That, that no, you don't just have faith. You don't have faith in faith. Um, that doesn't make any sense. It's, it's more than just this, this sort of nebulous wishing. Um, it's also more than just, I have faith that everything will turn out all right. It doesn't always turn out all right. I don't know when, I, when my husband allowed our daughter to drive to school on Sunday afternoon because she had to help take down the set from the musical that everything would turn out all right. I submitted to my husband and said, okay, we'll let her drive. I just want to make it be known that I do not agree with this decision. <laughs> and everything did turn out all right. But to say, oh, everything will turn out all right, it doesn't always. So that's not what our faith is in. Our faith isn't in, well, everything will turn out all right. A Hebrews 11 sort of faith is not so much placed faith in something, but it is faith placed in someone, namely God and his faithfulness. That is why each of the people mentioned in this chapter could act with confidence even when they didn't know how their story would turn out on this earth. And they could continue to act with confidence amidst trial when things didn't turn out in a happily ever after sort of way here on earth. Their hope was not in their circumstances. Rather, their hope was in their faithful, promise-keeping God. Now we're going to, in, in verse 4, our author is going to begin listing these people beginning with Abel. But I want you to notice um, that in this list, the author has two emphases. The first emphasis 
is on the act accomplished by faith. By faith, Abel gave an offering. So what Abel did, and that's true of each of these. And then the second um, emphasis is the right spiritual posture of the person. By faith, Abel did this, but that proved that he was right with God. His heart was right with God, as opposed to Cain's action that proved he was not. So beginning with verse 4, by faith, Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks, even though he is dead. So <clears throat> Abel gave the best of what he had. He didn't hold back. He didn't shrink back, as our author said earlier. He gave the best of what he had, thereby revealing a heart that was right with God. Cain, on the other hand, did hold back. He gave something. He gave what he hoped was good enough but he didn't give the best, and thereby revealing that he was not right spiritually. Now, so then in what sense does Abel still speak, even though he's dead? What our author is saying, it's not, you, you may have recalled the story from Genesis where God comes to Cain and says, you know, where is your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? And then God says, his blood is crying out to me. That's not what he's referring to. What he's saying, what our author is saying is through scripture, the voice of Abel, the example of Abel, Abel still speaks to us um, and still tells us about faith that is pleasing to God. So here the author is emphasizing the link between internal attitudes and external behavior. Boy, that's a strong link. Our attitudes undeniably have an impact on our actions. When our attitudes line up with God and God's word and God's will, our behavior almost invariably follows. I don't know about you, but I needed to hear that right there today, and I'm convicted by that. And so that's the, 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 one of the links that our author is making. And then he turns in verses 5 and 6 to talk about Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, his faith was commended as one who pleased God. So... Uh, Enoch did not taste death. The, the story in Genesis says that he just went away and God took him away. He did not experience death. The author isn't concerned about giving us the details, oftentimes in Hebrews. He's not concerned about getting the details. What he wants us to know is that this was done by faith and because of the faith of Enoch. In fact, it tells us in the Genesis account that, that he walked with God. I've got to tell you, I, I would love it if when I'm gone, that could be said about me, that I walked with God. And that term, walk with God, is actually sort of a Hebraic euphemism uh, uh, or a saying uh, that means close intimacy and fellowship. So uh, Enoch was one that had close intimacy with and fellowship with God. 
the Hebrew translation of the Old Testament, or excuse me, the Greek, excuse me, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, translated into Greek. It's called the 70. The 70 interprets it this way, that Enoch was well-pleasing to God. And that's what our author picks up on here. Enoch was clearly a man of faith. And Enoch's faith pleased God, which leads our author to turn and discuss this matter. So he is one who, Enoch was one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So there are three components to pleasing God. The first one is to come to him. Anyone who comes to him, and he tells us later what that means, to seek him earnestly. So the first component of faith is to seek God earnestly. Secondly, which probably should be firstly, you have to believe he exists. You're not going to get very far without that, are you? Uh, if you don't believe he exists. So we must believe he exists. And finally, we, have we must have confidence that he rewards the faithful. He rewards his followers. And then in verse 7, we learn about the faith of Noah. It says, By faith Noah, when warned about these things not yet seen, in a holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, that, that, those words, in holy fear, uh, is a word that is like this long, but it means that he paid close reverent attention to God's instruction. He took it seriously. He didn't blow it off. He didn't ignore what God had to say. Because of that, and think about Noah, I mean think about it. And there, there's some theologians who say it hadn't actually ever rained yet. So he's building this big boat. Why, Noah, are you building? Because it's going to rain. It's going to what? There's going to be a flood. There's going to be a what? I mean, think about this. Think about the faith it must have taken to say, you know what? God told, and then when the animals started showing up, it had to be a real zoo. But anyway, <laughs> it, I mean, it, think about the faith that took. He paid attention and he did exactly what God said to do, even though it seemed crazy. And even though there wasn't a drop of rain yet, he did it. Because of that, Noah bore witness to the existence and the truthfulness of an unseen God. In each of these cases, and particularly, I think, in Noah's case, these people did not know how their situation would turn out. Noah must have thought at one point, I could end up with a really expensive boat here that I don't have need of, which a lot of people, that happens when they end up with a boat. But, uh, you know, it, it, he had no idea how it would turn out, but they trusted God anyway. That is not so different from us. We don't know how things will turn out for us in this life. But we know God. Years ago, I heard a story, which I since probably believe was not, is not true, but it doesn't matter because it's such a great story, I'm going to tell it to you anyway. It's a story that's told about Einstein's wife. Did he even have a wife? Let's say he had a wife. About Einstein's wife. 
And, and she was asked once, Mrs. Einstein, do you understand your husband's theory of relativity? And this is her, was her answer. No, I don't. But I know Albert, and he can be trusted. They didn't know how it would turn out, but they knew God, and they knew God could be trusted, so they obeyed anyway. And then we get to Abraham, who, who is considered the greatest Old Testament example of faith. And here's what he has to say about Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, I love that phrase, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore, just as God had promised. So our author uh, presents us with two foundational events in this portion. He's going to add a third in a bit. In this portion, in Abraham's life, the first was God's call on Abraham to move. And he didn't give him like a Google Maps step by step. There was no GPS. He said, just go where I tell you. And Abraham obeyed, even though he didn't know where he was going. He still obeyed. Men don't like instructions anyway, I guess. He was obeying an unseen God and traveling to an unseen place, but he still obeyed. The second event is that God enabled, remember that word, God enabled Abraham to become a father at 100 and Sarah a mother at 90. I would think she was barren at 90, but she was barren at 30 as well. And Abraham trusted the faithfulness of God in that matter. Now, he did have the little thing with Hagar, and, but we won't go into that. The, he trusted after that when God said, no, it's not Ishmael. There's going to be a son, and you'll name him Isaac. Um, but the, the Hebrew in this hints at more than just Sarah's barrenness and their age. And it's this, and I boy struggled with how to tell you this. It, it centers on that word that God enabled Abraham to become a father, which actually intimates, intimates that Abel was not fully functional. <laughs> and therefore, so like if there had been Viagra back then, <laughs> Abraham probably would have been at the drugstore. That's what it's saying, <laughs> that even though uh, he wasn't fully functional. God enabled him. So Sarah was past childbearing age, and Abraham was like one of those forlorn guys in a Cialis commercial. And what is up with the two tubs? Can I think of anything less romantic than separate tubs? Please. But God said they would have a son, and they had a son. As Genesis 15:6 puts it, Abraham believed God. And he, and he credited, God credited it to him as righteousness. That's faith. Now what's the thing about the tents there? They were looking forward to heaven. They knew this world was not 
their home. Their life here was temporary, like tents. You don't live in a tent forever. Um, they looked forward. That word is looking forward. That word is they waited expectantly for their permanent heavenly home, which is what enabled them to live by faith. That hope in what was to come enabled them to live by faith now and to trust God with the earthly outcomes of their life. Well, then our author goes into this little interlude uh, about these people. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So the point here that's being made in this uh, few verses is that Abraham and his family, that's who the all these are. It's referring to Abraham, Isaac, uh, Sarah. Um, it's not refer it doesn't actually apply to the earlier ones uh, completely. So mostly he's talking about Abraham and his family. Did not live to see the fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham they never settled the land. His descendants did. God was good on the promise. But he never settled the land. They never saw a multitude of descendants. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob and Esau. It wasn't until after that time that they grew into a multitude. They never realized the blessing that was to come. Through you, I will bless all nations. Abraham never lived to see that. God fulfilled it. He didn't live to see it, though. Yet, they lived by faith. They lived in confidence and hope in God and his promises. All the days of their lives, as the New Testament puts it, they lived by faith and not by sight. All the while longing for their heavenly home. The true object of their deepest desire was God himself and the heavenly place that he had prepared for them. That is why they could die in faith despite not seeing all the promises that God would later fulfill. So the message for the original hearers who were facing persecution and to us as we face trials is that they could not see the fulfillment of God's promises. They didn't know how it would turn out. They only saw what they were enduring at that time. And the writer's point is, that's normal. Neither did these other people who live by faith know how it would turn out. Others before you have been there and done that and lived by faith. So like them, we must live with confidence in an unseen God and all that he has promised for us concerning our eternal home. So then he goes back to Abraham in verse 17. He says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob. Oh, wait, we'll, go, we'll wait on that. So, so Abraham here. Um, so we go back to Abraham again, and the third foundational event that our author tells us about is the sacrifice of Isaac, which he didn't actually have to go through on. Talk about not knowing an outcome when God asks you to do something, or even understanding the test question, for that matter. Why would God do this? Why would he ask this of Abraham? Well, the author of Hebrews will give us a little bit of the answer, I think. But what was Abraham thinking? You know, neither the author of Genesis nor the author of Hebrews cares to tell us that. We kind of have to fill in the blanks. We think as a father, as a mother, what would we think? My answer would be, <laughs> no way. But that was not Abraham's answer. But Abraham knew this much. He knew, first of all, that God had promised and delivered on his promise a son, Isaac. Secondly, he knew that God had stated that the fulfillment of all the other promises depended on that son. It would happen through Isaac. Thirdly, he knew God had asked him to sacrifice that very son. And what I think is that Abraham thought then the solution belongs to God. The solution to this dilemma is God's to answer, not mine. God will have to take care of that dilemma. I'll just obey. That's all he had to do. He had to obey, which had to be horrifically difficult for him to do. So we do know one thing that Abraham was thinking based on Hebrews, that, that he knew that God had the ability, God who had delivered on these promises, had the ability to raise the dead. And Abraham most likely thought that God would, would raise, that he would sacrifice Isaac and God would raise him from the dead. And in fact, we have a hint of that in Genesis where before they leave, he tells his servants, you stay here, we will go up and worship, and we will come back to you. So he believed that Isaac would return with him. But then what is it, it, this, this word in a manner of speaking is, is the phrase on perbole over there. And it actually means a symbol or a type. And that's the phrase that's translated in a manner of speaking. It is a symbol or a type pointing to a reality yet to come. It's a foreshadowing. So he isn't saying in a manner of speaking, he's saying as a way of foreshadowing. Abraham did receive Isaac back from the dead. Therefore, based on that, I believe that the author is not only saying that the sacrifice of Isaac foreshadowed, the sacrifice of Isaac foreshadowed the actual sacrifice of Jesus. He's also saying the return of Isaac to Abraham was a foreshadowing of the resurrection of believers. Isn't that interesting? And then he goes on to talk about Abraham, Isaac, or Isaac and Jacob. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on top of the staff. By faith, Joseph when he was near his end, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones to take his remains with them when they left. So Isaac blessed his son, sons, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob blessed Joseph's sons. There's a whole story in that too. 
They didn't know what their sons and their grandsons' futures would hold, but they knew the God who did. Jacob, Joseph died with his people in Egypt. But before he died, by faith, he told the people to take his remains to the promised land. And so he died believing that God would keep his promise to bring them into their own land. And then we hear about Moses. Wait, we hear about Moses? Uh, by faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because he saw, they saw that he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of the Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasure, treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover by the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. So it begins here talking about some, some uh, aspects of Moses' life, but it begins with the faith of Moses' parents. Not knowing the outcome, they hid Moses. Why? Well, it's likely because they had some spiritual insight into his significance. We don't know how they obtained that, but they knew that God had a plan for Moses beyond being a baby drowned in the Nile. And so they hid him. And then he talks about three, three different events that depict Moses' life. First, that he chose to identify with God's people at great personal cost and thereby experienced the same kind of reproach later experienced by Christ. That, that uh, verse there, that phrase there, literally means the disgrace of Christ. And so what our author is saying is that Moses believed it better to suffer than to live among the ungodly. And that was, that the, 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 it being better to suffer was a suffering that was like the suffering of Christ. So in other words, it is our author who is comparing Moses to Jesus, not Moses who was comparing himself. He didn't see his sufferings as being like Christ. Our author living on the other side of Jesus uh, is, is looking back and saying, look, at great personal cost, he identified with his people. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Jesus. Uh, the second thing uh, that he talks about is that he left, Moses left Egypt and persevered in the mission God gave him. And he was able to do so because he paid attention to an unseen God rather than a visible king. That's profound. And then thirdly, he led the people in the observance of Passover. He trusted God's promise to spare the firstborn of Israel. And then we have this little bit about the Israelites at the Red Sea. And all I'm going to say is they may have been faithless and complaining, but at this one juncture, when they faced either walking into the sea or turning and facing Pharaoh's armies, they did the right thing. <laughs> and they walked into the sea and moved forward. 
And then Joshua and Rahab in verses 30 and 31. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So Jericho, what a silly plan. Again, you want us to do what? And walk around for seven days and then seven times and then blow some horns? That's your plan, God? Really? That's how we're going to defeat this walled city? Yes, that is. And so they obeyed. And Joshua led them, believed and obeyed. And you know what? Believing and obeying, the two go hand in hand, don't they? And the walls came a-tumbling down. When I was in college, I was taught in my religion class that the walls of Jericho actually fell many hundreds of years before Joshua got there, and, and they fell over time because the city had been abandoned. And then they excavated some more, and I remember a number of years later sitting on a plane reading a secular journal that said, the walls of Jericho, Jericho actually fell suddenly, and at about the time that Joshua arrived. Really? Really? Yeah, really. I wanted to go back to my prof and say, guess what? Archaeology triumphs again. And Rahab, I love this. First of all, she's a woman, and she's the last one mentioned. She was a Gentile prost prostitute whose faith in God compelled her to help some spies who had come in, some Jewish spies, some Israeli spies who had come in to investigate the land. She didn't know what it might cost her to turn state's evidence, as it were, against her own people. But she knew, in her own words, she said, the Lord has given this land to you. And she was rewarded by being delivered from death. She lived among God's people from that time forward and eventually became the mother of Boaz. Ever heard of him? And the great-great-grandmother, if I'm doing the math correctly, of King David, Rahab. A Gentile, a woman, a prostitute, and a profound example of faith. I love how God works. Well, in his conclusion, he gives this sort of rapid fire of verbs, and I want you to fill them in as I read this because we're running short on time. He says, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, who quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead and were raised to life again. God did amazing things through these people of faith. And yet... It didn't always turn out well. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, per persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. This is faith expressed in hardship. And in fact, what he describes was the treatment of many of the prophets of the Old Testament. And some people, as he just told us in the earlier verses, some people uh, experience resurrection from the dead. Others experience death, believing in their future resurrection. You see, ladies, faith is not just faith in victory. 
It is knowing that there is victory beyond the grave no matter what happens in this life. Probably the, the biggest faith struggle I've ever had, and I've shared this with you in previous classes, was my father's death from Alzheimer's. And there was a point where he was very near death where it was obvious he was in pain. And that was so hard for me. And I remember I needed to get away, and so I went home, which was like two houses away. And I remember kneeling in the middle of my living room all alone and saying, don't let this saint die in pain. And I just heard the voice of God say, will you trust me even if it means your beloved father dies a difficult death? And I argued with God. I was there a while. And I finally said, okay, I trust you. Now, ladies, I will tell you that they figured out what was causing the pain, and they did relieve it, and he died a peaceful death. But that's not the point. The point is that I was at a crossroads where I needed to trust God, even though I didn't know what was going to happen. And the author's point in these verses is that God is faithful to his promises, and people of faith live in light of those promises. Well, he gives us a fitting epilogue to this um, this chapter where he says these were all commended for their faith yet none of them received what had been promised god had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect they were commended by god for their faith these people all lived by faith to the end even though none of them received what was promised by god what was it they didn't receive the definitive fulfillment of God's promise in Christ. They didn't know about Jesus yet. They hadn't received Jesus yet. How much more should we who know the Messiah live by faith? They didn't know the new covenant that would be established by Jesus, and yet, even though they did not experience the coming Messiah, they lived by faith. And they were made perfect, complete, along with us. Remember, that Jesus died once for all time, forward and backward. I know I skipped some things there. I'm sorry. We need to finish. Their faith in God has been vindicated since God has broken into the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. With us, they now know the perfecting power of Christ's sacrifice and the eternal inheritance of the saints. I want to end today by giving you two challenging questions, and these are not from me. They're from Dr. Guthrie and Boy, did they challenge me. And I wish I had time to give you some time to think about these questions, but we're already over time. The first question is this. How would you and I live today if we believed absolutely that God exists and that he loves us completely and that he has a destination for us that makes this world pale in comparison? Would our lives look any different if we were completely sold out to God's word and truth. Now here's a second question that I think is even more convicting. How would we live differently if we did not believe? Would our lives be much different? Because you see, ladies, if my life and my values and my behavior are not appreciably different from my unbelieving neighbor, then I am not living by faith. I am living by the world's values. And one of the things that's so crucial about this is people are watching. Our children are watching. A few years ago when Ed Noble came back from a retreat being, after being with our senior high kids, 
he talked to us before the kids came back. And he said, you know what? Your kids are looking at your lives. And the question they're asking about their faith is not, is it true? They don't want to know if it's true. The question they're asking is, does it work? And they're looking at your life to get the answer. Does it work? And it is when I live a life of faith that my life displays that faith works. I become not only one who bears witness to God, but one about whom God can bear witness in such a way that it will compel others to follow Jesus. How humbling is that? I gave each of you the opportunity to write your own definition of faith. Here's my very, def uh, very imperfect definition that I wrote down. Faith is a trust in God upon which we build our lives, upon which we can build our lives in such a way that fear is dispelled and we are compelled to act in accordance with the will and word of God despite the fact that we don't know the earthly outcome. We do, however, know the eternal outcome. And ladies, the eternal outcome is this. We will hear our Lord and Savior say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And so we will be with him forever. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this chapter that encourages us, convicts us, compels us, all in 40 verses. Father, may we be women who live by faith, by confidence in what we hope for, and by the assurance of what we don't see. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thanks, ladies. I am so sorry for those of you who have kids downstairs. We're not.